Hello, everyone. Welcome to um, another week of Advent. This week we're doing peace. Wow. The rest of the sermon's going to go better than that, hopefully. Um, which is going to be, and since Terry spent the time prior to this talking about how worship was violent and warfare, uh, setting this up well. You know, this week, this year forever, we're going through um, a word each week. I thought I devised this myself, looking at Christmas cards and coming up with ordering and checking out the patterns based on popularity and agonized over these words to go over for the weeks. And then I discovered that this actually exists, that I basically had reinvented the wheel, that every year there's a tradition of burnt lighting a candle. When you focus on a word, the first time you do hope, then you do peace, then you do joy, then you do love. So I, yeah. We're doing something traditional, apparently. I just didn't know. I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, Heidi was incredulous that I'd never heard of this. Missed it entirely. Um, so yeah, very traditional Advent here at Mercy Town. Welcome. Um, yeah, we're going over peace this week. Uh, again, it's worth noting this is an Advent series, not a Christmas series. Um, if you want to know the full distinction of that, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon, which are now making it online, and Stan took it over. Um, but it's largely a difference in tone. Both Advent and Christmas look towards the coming of Jesus, but they're looking at it from a different angle. Advent's looking at that period as it's just before Christmas prior to Christ's coming, to his arrival. And it's considering the longing, the preparation. Uh, it's the fast, the Christmas feast, uh, when that which we've been expecting has arrived. So the question would be, to some extent, why do we celebrate this holiday at all? Why are we even recognizing Advent um, or Christmas? God did not descend at some point um, and get his best God voice on and say, like, lo, thou shalt on the 25th of December recognize my birthday without fail. Um, this is something we've picked up and added ourselves. Um, and it has, but it's been done throughout church history for a very, very long time. Uh, there's really two good reasons I can think of for why we celebrate these holidays. Um, the first is that we're going to celebrate something. We are a celebrating people. We, I mean, America's taking this to new heights where every single day is a holiday of some sort. Um, my job now is a floating holiday, and we can ask for our birthday, any religious holiday, or any other major holiday that is missed. The thing is, in America, they actually have to clarify that National Donut Day does not qualify because that is a recognized day in the U.S. Uh, we celebrate things. So to some extent, putting religious holidays, having a calendar based on a cycle of religious things gives us something to celebrate. It, it puts something, we're going to celebrate something, we might as well celebrate Jesus being born. Uh, it's a little more important than National Donut Day. But there's also something that comes around with these things. We do like to ma mark the passage of time with holidays, but we also hope that a holiday imparts something. July 4th is not simply something that comes around each year to remind us that we get to light fireworks um, for like the six weeks around it. Um, but it's a time that actually is meant to bring us together as a nation and impart some sense of patriotism. 
Similarly, birthdays are both a reminder that someone's been born, but it's also a time we can come and celebrate the fact that that person is with us and wish them well and say, essentially, we are looking forward to celebrating another year with you. We're thankful that we've got to spend this year with you. We're thankful that you're alive, and we hope you take this with you as you go into this next year because we're looking forward to, in one year's time, doing this again to celebrate who you are. Even New Year's Eve, um, which is a fictitious holiday, uh, where we celebrate changing our calendars and the fact that clocks exist. Um, but it's something that we have built hope around. Um, we go into New Year's Eve with a sense of expectancy that something is going to be different the next day. That we can leave behind the crap of the previous year and go in with a fresh slate of forgetting what day to write in our, our things for the next three months. But it we hope these holidays bring something. We don't we celebrate Thanksgiving to remember to th give thanks. We celebrate uh, the military-oriented holidays to give thanks for the military and what it, and this freedom we have. Um, I don't know why we actually this is going well so far. <laughs> I have sick family. This has been a rough prep. Um, peace, be with you. peace be with me. Yes. <laughs> The point being, we're doing this holiday because we hope something comes out of it. We're not recognizing, we're just recognizing Advent because the clock in the calendar says we have to recognize Advent because Starbucks has changed their cups. And so we got to do something where the church, we might as well give it up because it's just a waste of time. We're spending time going over um, something that isn't useful. But what we hope is that in this period of Advent, in this period of Christmas, when we celebrate Easter, we pause and we remember a certain aspect of our faith. We take an aspect that is always present, because this entire faith is based partially around the fact that Jesus came. If Jesus didn't come, you get no Christianity. But... We take, we pause at Christmas and Advent to focus in on the fact that he came into our lives. And as I said last week, Christmas is largely an answer. And at Advent, we focus in on the question that's being asked. And we take the time of preparation, we take the time of pausing, so that on Christmas morning, when that answer is given and when we turn, our focus to celebrating the fact that God took on flesh to live among us, to pursue us. We hear the answer more clearly because we've spent time wondering what the question is. So that's what we're approaching these words looking at. We're looking at, through peace, considering this concept of peace, what longing is there that Christmas answers around peace? So why do we associate peace with Christmas? Last year, last week, wow, last week with hope, we discussed, I mean, one thing, on the theological sense, Christmas is an, the coming of Jesus is an answer to many promises given. It's a expectation, which is what hope is. Hope is an an expectant desire, those things are coming true. And even outside of the theological, you have a newborn child, which is, carries with it potential. I have expectations and desires for each of my children. The moment I saw Nathaniel, there was hope for what his life was going to be. 
You cannot say the same thing around childbirth and peace. I've been to three. Peace is not a word that comes to mind. Nor, I'm now raising three children. Again, not peace. Much of reckless fun, but not peace. So why do we associate Christmas with peace? Now, we saw one of the things. There's promises that have been given that are coming. The passage Terry read from Isaiah, from Isaiah 9, he is the Prince of Peace. I can't read the back half of that chapter without hearing since every time Emmanuel gets said, because I didn't grow up in the church, but I did grow up in Amy Grant. And that song, but you hear you at Christmas with these names that roll out where the Prince of Peace has come to be born. We're celebrating the birth of a king of peace. So we have peace that's oriented that way. We also have, in this case, we can actually rely on the text. Um, where hope doesn't really show up in the actual words of the passage, peace does center heavily in this. The first thing that we have recorded after Jesus is born is some shepherds appearing to, sorry, some angels, some shepherds appearing to angels. <laughs> They just climbed their way up to heaven and said, there's a guy down here. We think you left him. Um, Sorry. More accurately, the angels appear to the shepherds, and they announce that somebody has been born. They say, as it appears, glory to God in the highest. The most common version of this verse we know is the King James Version. This is the one that's burned into most of our consciousness, which is glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to men. That's the version we all know. Peace on earth. It's the one that Linus gets up and says at the end of the Peanuts show. Peace on earth. That's why we associate Christmas with peace. Angels have come and announced glory to God in the highest. Something has happened. Peace on earth. And that's where we get these idyllic nativity scenes. I mean, you can just, I can picture the cards. It shows up all the time. It's like this little dark blue background with the silhouette of the camel and the woman's on top of it and a guy's leading it, the little star in the background, peace on earth. You can almost hear the quietness on that card. The problem is it mismatches with our reality. I mean, the area in which Jesus is born, he's born near Jerusalem, which is the city of peace by name. Within a century, that city would be violently overthrown, completely toppled, and all of its riches dragged out. He's bo- Jesus is born at a time of oppression in that area. Israel is occupied by the Romans. And it's not like it's gotten better over time. Last century, the century any living adult was born in, because the century actually ends in the year 2000, not 2099, was the most violent century in history. Now, I work with numbers for a living, um, so I know firsthand how you get to tell stories with numbers. So I instinctively distrust any statement that has a number with it until I can check it out, especially ones that sound really slogany, like the most violent century in history. Because my thought is, well, there were a lot of people alive last century. 
So, I mean, and I mean, world population has been exponential in the way it's grown. So, of course, you get more people in a room, more people are going to shoot each other. But, yeah, every single time. Last century was the most violent century in history, really, any way you cut it. It was the most violent century in terms of total death by war. It was the most violent century by war per capita. And it was the most violent century by war taken as a total percentage of causes of death in general. So we killed the most people, we killed the most people per head, and we killed them, and the, most more, the highest portion of our deaths came from war last century. The only bright spot in this is that 60% or so of that was in the first 45 years. I think it was two-thirds was in the first 45 years due to the two world wars. But that probably is more because we finally invented a gun so big that if we shoot it, we kill ourselves. So we've fought a lot of smaller wars since then. The truth is, in the 2,000 years since Jesus has been bo was born, we haven't seen a ton of peace on earth. And this isn't a spot where a nuanced biblical definition kind of lets this announcement off the hook. The biblical word, which is um, erene, which I remember, like, hope was... Elpis, which sounds like Elvis to me. Irene sounds like irony to me. And for some reason, I can associate that with peace. That word carries with it the idea of ceasing of conflict, the way we use peace. But the biblical usage, which draws on the um, Old Testament, carries with it a deeper nuance, typically, of a wholeness of relationship. So it's not simply, like right now we are at peace with North Korea as a country in the sense of we're not actively shooting each other. But we are not at peace in a wholeness of relationship sense. The same way you have peace at a family level. Yes, you have peace when the husband and wife are not killing each other. Where there's not fights, where nothing's being thrown, there's peace. But there's not necessarily this more full, orbed, really comes from a Jewish line of thought piece of a wholeness of relationship where they're relating to each other out of the roles in love the way they're meant to. That's even you get to peace that we have within ourselves. That's why that common phrase, peace be with you. It's saying, it's not simply saying when you go outside, peace be with you, I hope no one attacks you and kills you. It's saying as you go out, I hope that you have this wholeness of relationship, even internal to yourself. That idea of being at peace with oneself, it's wishing that. It's a, like you, could, you could translate it simply as be well, be whole in all that you are. Peace be with you. And again, this peace. So these angels come and they appear and they say peace on earth. But it mismatches with our reality. I mean, the question is, and I've said, you look at, you look at Advent kind of like, what happened when Jesus came? What's going to happen when he comes again? And what's happening as he is consistently present in our hearts? What kind of peace did Jesus bring? Was it peace on earth just for an hour? It's like, did the angels just get really excited when they heard the news, run down to tell the shepherds, yell, peace on earth, and then get back up to heaven and find out, like, oh, it's just an hour. We should have mentioned that. It's just like when World War One happened, and the and World War One happened at Christmas in World War One. There was a time when there was basically an unannounced ceasefire, and for a moment, 
the Germans and the English get up and they meet in the center and they share meals, they play some soccer, then they go back to the trenches and they go back to shooting each other the next time. Was it just Christmas night where there was this moment of peace and then we return to the world as we know it? And this is often our experience with Christmas. We have a sentimentalized view of Christmas. We have a very warm, very fuzzy view of this manger scene. It's cozy. I think it's Oscar Wilde who defined sentimentalism as wanting to experience an emotion without paying the cost of it. It's essentially, we can grit our teeth, just squeeze down, and we can push the story of Jesus' birth far enough out of this world that it starts to exist in a Thomas Kincaid painting, who is the king of sentimentalism. You know what I'm talking about? The fuzzy background, and then the little house that's glowing, and you can just picture Mary just had a child, but she looks so peaceful. The whole thing glows with this just warmth. And that's a lot of the way we approach Christmas. And it's not just in the church. I mean, the world recognizes this. My dad's favorite Christmas movie, so I've seen it 175,000 times, is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The driving thrust of that film is Chevy Chase's sentimental view of what he wants Christmas to be. He wants to experience the warmth of the Christmas of his childhood without understanding the cost that was paid to make that happen. That's the narrative thrust of that movie. And there's many other Christmas movies that focus in on that same thing. But we do it as Christians too. We have this idyllic, peaceful, sentimentalized view of a manger scene where peace is possible. It becomes an ability to look at this violent world we live in in a place where we can escape. We can close our eyes and will ourselves even for just one morning or one night or a few moments over the season into this point of finding peace removed from all of the chaos and violence that happens in this world. The problem with sentimentalism is that it's not grounded in our time. It works completely against an idea that something happened at Christmas, a peace was brought at Christmas that's meant to go with us through the year. It becomes an escape. It's not something that you can take with you when life comes breaking in, and life comes breaking in consistently. Even on Christmas morning, your kids are still your kids. Wow, negative news on this. I like my kids. I'll make that very clear. But there's still the challenge. I mean, you give them the gift and they look at you and ask, what else? You're like, well, they were in a little bit of my peace that I was holding on to for this. But that's just us. While we are celebrating Christmas, there's wars going on around this world. There's people who are on the street, homeless. There are families that cannot get together because there's too much strife. There's families that are getting together and holding it together for the kids. And a sentimentalized view of Jesus' birth, where we can at least keep peace safe from this world, won't help us with that. Now, the good news is we strip away 
the saccharine nature of our conceptions often, we do find peace that can carry us through the year. The angels weren't wrong when they announced that. But it is worth noting that the King James Bible basically quotes them incorrectly. Um, as I said, the King James Version, hold on, I have my phone if I can get to it. I don't carry every single version of the Bible with me. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. That's the version most people know. ESV, though, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Which is a pretty radical departure. It's not just ESV, NIV. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In the New Living Translation, glory to God in the highest, in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. We see again, that is consistent with every modern translation. The King James Bible, I think, is 400 years old now. Um, It was... And this is not a case where, I mean, Terry, thankfully, read the, um, Spielman's confusion, read Isaiah 9 out of a different version than we had on the screen. That was the ESV on the screen, Terry read of the NIV. You see how much difference there is. But if you were to put those against each other, you basically get the same idea. In this verse, King James versus pretty much every other version, you're seeing a completely different idea. Now, what's happened is, I'm trying to do this without getting too technical, essentially, I mean, the Bible was originally written in Greek, over the years, it was copied again and again and again and again and again. And those copies get collected eventually into books. And the King James Version rely, relied on a, actually, I think primarily on a single version, this codex, that is collected. It's a cleaned up version of the Greek text. The problem is the Greek text of the King James Version relies upon, which we can trace back to the earlier versions, at some point, a scribe dropped the final letter off of a word. The word for goodwill loses its last letter. It's a sigma gets dropped off, I believe. And it changes the case, which changes the meaning entirely. It goes, it's like we do see the same thing. It's like if I say I love, I loved that TV show. I'm talking about when I was a kid. Like I loved that show. And Becca drops the D off and gets me the box set of like Sesame Street because she's reading it as I love that show. A single letter has that much of an impact in a language. In this case, it changes the meaning from literally meaning men of goodwill, which is what gets translated, that's a Hebraic idiom. It gets changed to goodwill to men. It changes the case from genitive to dative. So that's what's happened. It's not confusing, but it's what we ended up happening. The problem is the King James Version is the version that's burned into everybody's mind. King James Version has shaped the English language. There's so many phrases that we use on a regular basis that the reason we have them, they're popular, is the King James Version. And I, I like the King James Version. I like the poetry. I even like the these and nows. Um, I do. But it, we have to... But then we get our... What's happened is you get the King James Version, which then translates into our Christmas cards, which then translates into the way we read that verse, and we don't notice the fact that it says something actually quite differently. Not completely different, but it says something that is a departure from the way that we want to read it. It's saying something about the peace that comes here. It's not simply peace on earth. The angels were not mistaken. It was not an hour. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't meant like, now we have world peace, guys. Go for it. Oh, you lost it. It was actually 
a different idea. And we see this. Jesus' relationship with peace is messy. He is our peace. And that's made clear. Ephesians says, he himself is our peace. He makes peace for us. He is the Prince of Peace, right? Jesus brings peace, unless you ask him if he brought peace. Then he says, this is from Matthew 10. It would have been helpful if I had Matthew 10 up. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be with those of his own household. This is the same guy who, when it talks about him, it talks about him reconnecting the hearts of fathers with their children. And he's also saying, I haven't come to bring peace, but I brought a sword. So what is going on? What kind of peace comes with Jesus? What kind of peace came into this earth at Advent? I'm sorry, at Christmas when he was born. Now, if we return to a nativity scene, we can see how our conception has been shaped of this. I mean, you can see we have a nativity set behind us. Who generally shows up in a nativity set? I'll give you one. Jesus is there. Then we get Mary and Joseph, right? Some animals. A donkey. Who else? Who's the next people you say? Shepherds and three wise men. That's right. That's pretty much the cast. And occasionally you get an angel sitting on top of it with a star on their head. Basically what your nativity set is. That's what the little Fisher Price one um, my kids have that, that you know, uses action figures over the course of Christmas has. But who's missing from this? This is basically everyone that is in the Bethlehem narrative in the Bible. From the time they arrive to the time they leave, this is everybody who shows up. You skip the part when there's youth about when they go to the temple. You don't get Anna and Simeon somehow transplanted into the, the scene. But for one thing, we're, we're inaccurate because you don't get the shepherds and the wise men arriving in the same day if you read the Bible. It's not like they're born and there's like a shepherd there and the wise men are all there. There's a long duration here. We've compressed time already. So let's just take that for granted in our interview. Who's missing from this section? Actually, a fairly major player, arguably bigger than the wise men in the story. Now, after Jesus was born, this is Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came from to Jerusalem. Herod doesn't show up in our nativity scenes. He isn't just there to give a time frame either. It's not like they're saying, like, in the days of those kings, this happened. This is in the days of Herod. They go to where Herod is, and they talk to Herod's people because they're trying to find out where this king is born. And this threatens Herod. It threatens Herod to where he tells them to when they come back. He tells the wise, he gets his people to tell him where this child is born. And he tells the wise men to please, on their way back, come back by Jerusalem and tell me where he is so that I can go worship him. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He shows this because the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back by Jerusalem. 
and instead they head straight home. And then Joseph needs to be warned to leave Bethlehem because Herod is enraged when he realizes they're not coming back, and he sends soldiers to go kill everyone under the age of two in this town. Now, I understand why that doesn't show up in the nativity scene on our mantles. Nobody wants a little Fisher-Price thing with like a spear going down into a toddler. That just, it would be rough. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And we have kids in our house, and they play with them, actually. Mine do play with the spears, but we are adults. We need to recognize that on the nativity scene that we put on our hearth, when we put this symbol of this peace that comes with Jesus in our heart, we need to recognize that right behind the book over to its left, there are soldiers coming this direction. That there, This scene is not something that took place in, against that fuzzy, beautiful, warm, Thomas Kincaidish background. It's something that takes place in a war zone with darkness swirling around it. Revelation tells the story of this from a different angle, and it speaks of a dragon ready to consume the child when it's born. Satan knew what was coming. He knew who was arriving, and he was enraged. So he finds in Herod a useful tool to come and execute what he wants to have happen, which is kill the children. We need to see that the light of peace did come into this world, but it didn't come into a nicely lit room. It came into a place of darkness. We need to place this in context. We need to place most of what we read in the Bible in context. Terry is really helpful, unprovoked with his preparation. He quoted John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all should believe in who should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right? Jesus bringing nice, warm peace to our lives. But Jesus has a habit of not stopping talking when we'd like him to. He continues on in a similar vein for John 3.17, John 3.18, and then he gets to John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light of peace has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The darkness seeks to destroy the light. The darkness hates the light. That's why Jesus does come bringing peace. But the response to that of the powers that are threatened is one of thrashing violence. I mean, the greatest long section of Jesus and peace is from Ephesians, which I alluded to earlier. This is Ephesians 2, starting in 14, verse 14. For he, and this is Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. This is speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, but what we see here is a reconciliation of all people. People come into Jesus, and he kills the hostility between them within himself, and he makes in them one person, in him. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
Jesus comes bringing peace. He is our peace. He preaches peace. He announces peace. He is the Prince of Peace. But we can't separate Ephesians, that section of Ephesians 2 from the end of chapter 1, which speaks of Jesus, this same Jesus, being seated at the right hand of God with all authority, the name above all names. We can't separate this, him bringing peace, from how he does it, which is the first half of chapter 2 of Ephesians, where he, by God's mercy, rescues us. He takes us from the power of the prince of the air, takes us from the power of Satan, from among the sons of disobedience, and he brings us into his kingdom. He brings peace, but that peace is met with resistance. He brings peace because he brings a sign of God that I have taken these people. These are now mine. And all the dark powers of this world know exactly what that means. So there's conflict. That's why Jesus comes. He doesn't come bringing peace. What he's saying is, I'm not coming to make peace with the darkness of this world. I'm not coming to simply make everything okay and smooth everything out. He's coming to bring his kingdom, his kingdom of peace into this world. And some people are going to go for that, and some people are going to rage against it. There's a reason that Ephesians, a book outlining him being our peace, ends with a call to put on armor. It recognizes that this peace comes to us in the midst of a battle. And that is the peace that Jesus brought. And that's why it is peace. Let me quote it correctly from from Ephesians. Wow. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But this raging won't continue forever. Because there is a peace Jesus is bringing. Hebrews two speaks of how upon the cross, in his propitiation for his sin, for our sins, he ended the power of death that Satan had as his great weapon. The triumvirate of Satan's sin and death has been broken, and Jesus is in the process of working out the meaning of what that is. He is with patience waiting for us to repent but he will return. And that's the other coming of Jesus that we remember in Advent, that he will return and that the so- these sowers of discord, Satan, sin, and death will be removed forever. And then we will actually experience the peace in its fullness. And that peace will be lasting and it will be eternal, but again, it's grounded in God's rule. Jesus is not somebody who simply comes bringing peace willy-nilly. He comes establishing a kingdom, a kingdom of peace. He comes not to make peace with Satan, but to cast him out. He comes not to make peace and find a nice place for death in his kingdom, but to cast it out. He comes not to figure out how to work himself around our sins so that they can dwell peacefully with us, but to cast them out. Now, it's important to note how this was done, because that can have an image that Jesus is just like this giant Borg that comes down and rules over everything, and we've lost all 
everything that makes us human, so there's peace. It's the peace of a white slate. And that is, that's what he could have done. He could have just like poured like God bleach on the whole thing and just wiped earth white and started over again. But instead, he comes and he takes upon, he comes low. He empties himself and comes and dies upon a cross to take the darkness, to take that sin, to take that death, to take it upon himself so that it would in him be condemned. We don't have a God who rules at a distance, who sits in his throne, unwilling to dirty his hands to get us clean, to speak very metaphorically but one who is willing to cover the distance, one who is willing to humble himself and actually do the work to save us and in that to bring us peace. And that's where we live. We live between these two events. We live between the time when this prince of peace has come to establish his kingdom. When he has died upon the cross to break the hold of the wicked powers that oppose peace. And when he will come back, having made death his footstool, having cast it all away, having brought about a new creation and a new heavens, new earth, bringing everything as it will be, a, light, a time when actually we will have, be without the sin and the wickedness that has just gripped our hearts for millennia. We'll be free of that, and the peace that we've so longed for will reign. So it's no surprise that we don't see peace on earth right now. The kingdom of God is on its move. It's meeting resistance. The kingdom of darkness eats its own. We live in a violent world. But we are not alone because there's also the peace that Jesus places within us. In the midst of this conflict, we can still have peace. At the end of, as on the final night, he gives a rather long speech to his disciples. And towards the end, before he prays his prayer, he says, this is in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, as to his disciples, that in me you may have peace. But again, he keeps talking a little longer than we'd like. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus doesn't say, I give you peace because there will be no tribulation now. He says, I give you my peace. There will be tribulation, but I've overcome it. So we come as his people, knowing the, other, the third way we can remember that Jesus comes to us at Advent and meets that longing. We can remember that he has placed part of himself in us. He's given us his spirit. You can't really separate anything that gets said in those chapters in John from Jesus' giving the Spirit to us. That's woven throughout that section of Scripture. The peace he's given to us is tied to the Spirit he's placed within us. We don't simply need to, through very good memorization and like sticky notes on our uh, bathroom mirror, need to be reminded that a day is coming when peace will reign though those things are all very helpful. But we have a spirit within us that takes the truths that we know and can apply them to our heart on a consistent basis, reminding us of that peace. And again, this is where it's good to have 
cut around the manger scene and pulled out of the Thomas Kincaid painting and set in the darkness because we need to know that light exists in darkness because that means if that light can exist there, no matter how dark you think your heart is, no matter how wicked your desires are, no matter how much you know something within you rages against the kingdom of God, there's a light within you if God's spirit dwells within you and that light will illuminate the whole thing. It will slowly work its way out, bringing life to everywhere there is death. And in that, it brings peace. That peace, that kernel of peace, that child place within you, grows and grows and grows. And that's uncomfortable. Because again, there's parts of us that want to hold on to the darkness. There's parts of us that have success and failure tied up into some of those systems continuing to move the way they move. There's parts of us that we would rather not face, but we have a light of peace placed in our hearts that is committed to our transformation. And it takes work. Romans speaks of, by the Spirit, be putting to death sin. And we might live. To expect this to come without effort is folly. There is a seed planted within you, but we work with that seed as it works, as that Spirit works within us, transforming who we are. Because it's it's tied to Jesus' reign. That's what we have at Advent. When Jesus came, as nice as it would have been, he didn't bring the fullness of peace on earth. That we would all just walk in peace and somehow the last two millennia has just been a mirage of violence that hasn't actually been there. No. He came and entered into the darkness and the violence of this world. He came and he bore the cost of the violence of this world. The violence of this world was unleashed upon the Prince of Peace so that he might absorb it and condemn it for those who are found in him, that it would not be accounted to us. And now as those people, we can wait expectantly for his return when he will come in a moment and a twinkling of an eye will be transformed, which is one of the phrases we get from the King James Version of the Bible. And we will find the peace that we long for. Hostility will be laid down. The swords will be beaten into plowshares, whatever on earth the plowshares. And we will find within ourselves wholeness. We will live without the things within us, the flesh that battles against us, wanting to do other than the will of God. We will live without the sin that's within us that poisons our relationships. It'll be so nice to walk with other people, not needing to constantly be asking forgiveness and trying to figure out how to make up for the fact that I'm selfish. I was selfish again. To actually see, though, the life that's been put within us come into a fullness of what it's meant to be and to walk in that every single day for eternity. 
And that's the peace we can long for at Advent. So I said that there was a practice for each one of these. Um, I said they're all simple, and you're all going to not believe me halfway through this one, but I promise you this is actually simple. We are at the end of the year, which is when most people, if they're going to, pick up a Bible reading plan. This, I'm not sure if this week or next week's practice suggestion is the one that's been most helpful to me in my Christian walk, um, outside of prayer and the Psalms, which I didn't actually make it in here. But which of these two ways of reading Scripture is the most helpful? But the nice thing is you can do them both together if you want to wait one week. Um, we live in a world that has a constant narrative about what's going on, about how things are running, about what sort of peace we can expect, about how everything flows, about who we are, about who God is, about the meaning of life. And without a counter-narrative, we are, we are just tossed about on the waters there. The challenge is that, generally speaking, verses alone, detached, don't do enough to counter the narrative because they, they feel they're incomplete. You get the fact that God so loved the world, but then you run out and you keep saying this, and eventually somebody hits you in the face for it, and you read, this doesn't make sense. But if you've read the whole paragraph, you realize God so loved the world, he's given this light. Not everyone wants it. The darkness still opposes it. So we need to come here. We need to understand that when God says we can, buy, we can do, do all things, Philippians, he's not talking about winning sports games primarily or giving a context for where the spiritual armor passage. So what I'm talking about is we need to understand the Bible at a book level. Now, the way I have found most helpful to do this is to find one book, pick a short one, four to six chapters tops, and then read it. Don't study it. Don't read through it devotionally. Just read it at a regular reading pace for comprehension. At that pace, a chapter takes three to five minutes, generally speaking. Let's just say five for the high-level estimate. When you get done reading it, so if you've invested 20 minutes to read a four chapter, and you can do it over multiple days, when you get done reading it, read it again. And then when you get done reading it, read it again. Read the book 20 times. That's why I said you guys are going to think it's impossible. I promise it can be done, and it's actually really helpful. What happens is around time five to seven, you hit a wall. It gets really boring. And I say this as a person who loves the scripture, it gets really boring because the novelty starts to wear off. Usually when you pick a book up, you haven't read it in six months. You're like, oh, that's where that was. I remember that verse. If you've read it five times in the past two months, and you get to it again, you go, oh, it's that same thing. You start, the novelty starts to wear off, but that's actually a good sign because you're starting to learn the book. And the goal is not to go into the detail of every single thing, but it's to get what is the author trying to say? What's trying to be said to whoever received this book? And letting that fact and that story start to work its way into your head. And it happens through repetition. There is no shortcut to that. As I said, it takes work to see this transformation happen in our hearts. 
but it's not a ton of work. If you pick Colossians, which is a fantastic book to do it, this was Colossians, four chapters? Four chapters. It's 20 minutes per time. You could do it once a week. You could do it every other week. You do it every other week, and you still finish it within a year. And you're still doing it close enough that you're remembering what you're reading. And by the end of that time, Colossians will be yours. You will know the book. When you're reading Ephesians, you'll notice that it has a similar structure. When somebody references something else, you remember this thing back that you remembered from Colossians. You'll start to understand why the pieces of it work together, and you'll start to hear what was intended to transform in the people who heard this book. And it's not a verse, although the verses are important, but it's the ideas behind it that get woven into you. We can't do this. We need to be steeped in Scripture. And the problem is devotional reading is nice and deep, but it doesn't cover breadth. And since we're not reading repetitively, you can read poorly sometimes. And reading the whole Bible, by the time you get back around to the book for the second time, which usually you're so exhausted by having done the full Bible reading, you put it off for four years, you don't remember any of it. Or you remember some. I mean, we all remember a little bit, but it's, it's still it's fresh and new. It's, again, it's the, oh, that's there. Doing this reading the book 20 times in a row, and I've done this with a handful of books, and it has been enriching every single time. It, it does have a transformative power. I can promise that. So that's it. <laughs>